it was quite possible, if without the intervention of the king, that there could have been a Queen Sheila. It never happened, but uh, at the time, of course, he was the brother, never likely to become king. And many years later, when it did happen, if his relationship with Sheila had gone on, they probably would have been married with children. But um, it turned out another way. That's Robert Wainwright with a tantalising theory about what might have happened to Australian socialite Sheila Chisholm, the subject of his best-selling biography, Sheila, if her romance with a British prince had been allowed to continue. We'll hear more from him in a moment. Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, the podcast about contemporary biography. I'm Caroline Baum. Robert Wainwright has written books about Ian Thorpe, the Darrell Lee Confectionery Dynasty, Suffragette Muriel Matters, and the murder of Caroline Byrne. But since moving to London a few years ago, he's written two bestsellers, Sheila, followed by Enid, about glamorous Australian women who moved in the highest circles of British and European society in the period between the two world wars, but who've been largely forgotten since their heyday. Sheila Chisholm was the daughter of a wealthy grazier who penetrated the inner circle of the royal family, mixing regularly with both Princes Albert, the future King George VI, the current Queen's father, and Edward, the Prince of Wales who abdicated. Enid Lindemann grew up within the privileged enclave of the winemaking Lindemann dynasty and was encouraged to marry well, which she did not once, but four times, acquiring a title and a nickname in the process that made her notorious. I spoke to Robert via Zoom in a snowy London lockdown. Robert Wainwright, welcome to Life Sentences. Thanks for having me, Carol. Are you a big reader of biographies anyway, or were you before you became a biographer? Um, I, I haven't, and I'm not. Um, I'm not sure if I'm ashamed of that or not, uh, but I, I'm, a, I'm a journalist, and that's where everything comes from. And I live with non-fiction and fact or true facts every day. And uh, my escape as a reader really is fiction. Um, so rather than non-fiction, which I struggle with <laughs> professionally every day. So yes, I do read or have read biographies, but generally no, and particularly not when I'm working on a, on a subject. I, tr I try not to. Now, you mentioned there being a journalist, and obviously that's central to your craft, but the big difference with journalism is that journalists are sprinters and biographers are running a marathon. So how did you find that transition? Well, I am a great believer in breaking projects down. I think that, you know, you have a mountain and if you keep looking at the mountain, you'll never get there. So I, I, I my method has, give or take, has been to break down a 90,000-word book into uh, 90 Saturday features for the Sydney Morning Herald. So a 1,000 words, a 1,000 words, a 1,000 words, and I break it down even more um, when I am writing, but I'll, I'll break it down into word counts for the day, and I'll so if I'm doing 300 words a day, I, I'm satisfied, I don't need to hurry. So it's all about breaking down that process back into what I know as a, as a journalist. All my books have started with a, a, a prologue or an opening chapter, which is supposed to set up the story for the reader. So in Sheila's case, it was at the end of her life. Then you stretch the rubber band back and then you let it go. So you've got that starting point and you stretch it back to the beginning and off, off the story goes. In another book I wrote about a search for a lost boy in the middle of the outback, I 
began after the search with a very strange scenario where it rained fish in the middle of the desert. And I was trying to set up the story as being um, that this was a strange place where strange things happened. So that's the notion of what I'm, I'm trying to get to. Muriel Matters began with her climbing into a, a basket to soar above London in a balloon, which happens halfway through the story, but it's supposed to tell the reader, hey, this is a brave, wonderful woman who's doing a crazy thing, and this is you're going to immediately grab their attention, and then you take the story back to the beginning of her life. So how did your book about Sheila Chisholm come about? I heard that you saw a passing remark about her in a biography of someone else. Is that true? Yes, it was actually the great Richard Walsh, who's been a fantastic mentor of mine and many, yes, I guess we all cross ourselves, um, who, who got me onto my first book back in 2000 or something. And um, he came to me and he said, look, what are you doing in London? I hadn't had a project on for a while. He said, I've just read William Shawcross's biography on the Queen Mother and there's a sentence in there about an Australian woman named Sheila Loughborough. I don't know who she is, but she's apparently in love with, uh, with Albert, so we know him as Bertie. Find out who she is and see if there's a story. And that's literally how it started, a sentence in the Shawcross biography. And that was something I loved doing, which is here's a, a snippet, a shard of information, go away and see what is there. And it just grew and grew and grew from there. And that's, that was the starting point. Okay, Albert and Bertie, of course, two princes. You refer to them as if they were, you know, your mates down the road. Maybe you should explain exactly who they are. Well, uh, Sheila, of course, her, uh, she had a love affair with the Queen's father, so who we all know as Bertie of the King's Speech. Now, this happened before uh, he met the Queen Mother. And in fact, delightfully, he was dancing with Sheila and it was their last dance because the King had basically told him, I will make you the Duke of York if you never speak of the Australian again. So he obeyed his father, unlike his brother Edward, who did the opposite. And he was dancing with Sheila, their last dance together, and he spied this other woman in a doorway and it was the Queen Mother. So Sheila came before and, in fact, um, Bertie was completely besotted by Sheila and it was quite possible, if without the intervention of the king, that there could have been a Queen Sheila. It never happened, but uh, at the time, of course, he was the brother, never likely to become king. And many years later, when it did happen, if his relationship with Sheila had gone on, they probably would have been married with children. But um, it turned out another way. So serendipitous. That is a very tantalising prospect that you dangle there. I'm just wondering, Robert, given that particular romance and relationship, did you try to get into any royal archives to see if there was any correspondence there? Because talking to writers like Julia Baird about how difficult it was for her to gain access to royal archives when she was writing about Victoria, I'm just imagining that this would have been a much hotter potato. So were you denied or do you think there's nothing there or you'll never know? Uh, I was denied, um, politely. And in fact, I felt privileged that they answered. (laughs) Um, My great delight was in the Scottish archives. Um, And it was one of those days where you're in a dusty room, you're there by yourself, and you find a a piece of treasure. And and this was the records of her her family, the first family she married. So uh, her grave is actually in a 14th century chapel outside Edinburgh, 
from the the family of her first husband and and her all the family's um, private papers are in the Scottish archives and I found this envelope it was like somebody had put it on the bottom of the drawer of you know their underwear drawer or something that's their treasured place and I opened it up and here are all these letters and one of them was a business card from Rudolf Valentino uh, as I remember who was fell in love with Sheila at some point uh, and uh, amongst the other things there were marriage certificates and birth certificates and then there were five five letters I think four letters there was one letter from Edward uh, to her so one king of England and there were three letters from Albert so two kings of England she kept their letters in her in her underpants drawer and I opened this up and, uh, and it was basically a love letter. And he was writing to her because their relationship had ended on the orders of the king and she was in Australia. And he was clearly missing her. And so he, in his own stilted way, was saying, look, social events are not what they ever were because I walk into the room and you're not there. So the room's empty as far as I'm concerned. It was just, I was sitting in this room by myself uh, and I was thinking, oh my God, only three people have seen this letter. Sheila, myself, and a King of England, and, uh, and and it's been put away, and that was a joy. So archives are wonderful places, and in the end, thankfully, I don't think I needed the Royal Archives, but thank God there was one that, that let me in. So, You say there that you had a wonderful time in that archive, but do you like archives generally? Because I always find that I love the business of interviewing people face-to-face and talking to people's relatives, but that I'm completely overwhelmed when I go into archives by catalogue systems. I'm overwhelmed by what I might miss. I'm worried that I may not be able to read very tricky handwriting, which can be very, very tiring to decipher. So do you like archives as a place to work, or do you just love that archive because you struck it rich? Well, I particularly like that one, but um, mine is such a mix, uh, and I hope you don't ask me, you know, what my process is because I can't tell you, but I call it rabbit-holing. And also, um, with my subject matter, everybody associated with the person I'm writing about is long dead. So I have very few people I can go... There's been some exceptions, like... I think there's one or two women who knew Enid who are still alive, but they're they're long gone. Um, unfortunately, none of my uh, none of the people I've written about, barring Shearer a little bit, kept diaries. So I I dream of finding a, a wonderful person who kept a diary, but so far I haven't. So I find that uh, I have a mix of I, I do a lot of online archive researching, which is the rabbit holing. And I just spend hours exploring words, phrases, years, anything which might accidentally take me into some information because it's imperfect, because digital is not perfect in recognising words. It's not. Uh, Nothing's perfect. But I also need tactile things like anybody else. So I I love the British Library. Uh, It's a comfortable place to work. Uh, their microfiche works and you can rabbit hole there. Their staff are great and they'll track things down for you. You can order online. So I, I love a mix of those things. And what I tend to do is to stack up bits of information that I'd like to pursue. So I have 10 or 20 th- items or references in books I don't feel like buying. And then I can send them off and then go into the archive and off I go. And I, I can be quite productive in that in that form. So it's it's a mass of things that change all the time. It's a frustration, but also it's part of the fun 
of, of writing the types of books I do. It's interesting that you mention how much you like that digital rabbit-holing because that does presume that the documents that you're looking for have been digitised, whereas not everything has. No, that, and that's, that's the imperfect nature of the whole thing. Again, the people I write about, uh, I mean, they're mainly people who are, people who are famous in their own day but they were, they were forgotten. So they're forgotten histories in a lot of ways, although my, my next book is not a forgotten history. But So I find that because they're well-known or for whatever reason that I can find a timeline of sorts through newspapers. I can see what they're up to, what they weren't up to. I can then... So if I suddenly... Uh, I found a delightful reference accidentally of Dame Nellie Melba, who I'm writing about at the moment about uh, her being interviewed in America in 1898 during a tour and some widow in this town had been uh, had tried to take up her husband's position selling fire insurance when he died and the company allowed her but the town board refused her because she was a woman and there's a great ruckus and Nellie weighed in on this debate and produced this beautiful speech about men and women and, and the envious men, right? And suddenly this woman came alive, you know, in terms of her view of the world. It was completely accidental. It was, uh, and then that led me on to, well, hang on a minute, how do we find out if she wrote about other things? And it led on to her talking about riding bicycles. It turned out, uh, turned on to her becoming a, a suffragette uh, in America and in the UK. And so... That's what I mean. It's like this accidental journey that can lead you to places that you don't really think of. Did Sheila being a bestseller lead to Enid? What's what's the sort of relationship between those two books? Enid came about because my publisher here in London, um, Claire Drysdale from Alan Unwin, we were having lunch and she had a few of her friends over and we were essentially, this was around the launch of Sheila in the UK. And... Uh, one of the guests had no knowledge of this, and he suddenly piped up and he said, oh, she sounds really interesting. Have you heard of Enid Lindemann? And I said, no, who is she? And he said, she used to walk a leopard around Hyde Park on a diamond collar. And I went, uh-oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll have to look at this lady. And um, so, yes, yeah, she came directly from Sheila in that sense, and that's where these sparks come from. I was curious to know, you don't say so in your book about Enid, but I looked up their birth dates and it seemed to me that Sheila and Enid were in fact contemporaries. Did they know each other? I'm sure they met. I don't know. I tried to find this as well. They were mentioned in the same news story about beauty on many occasions. Their photographs appeared next to one another in, in stories of the time, but they mixed in different circles. So Sheila's was very much a society circle, an aristocratic circle, a political circle of the day, uh, which in itself was unusual, frankly. Enid was much more... Um, uh, she was a character of her own, and also she was very much more associated with, with France than, than England. So her, her circle was Coco Chanel, for example. She travelled a lot more to, to Africa and India with, with uh, the very, well, very wealthy husband of hers. So they were in London at the same time. They knew some of the same people, but, but different circles. 
If you were going to sit down and have dinner with either of them or spend time with either of them, which woman would it be? Well, no doubt at all I would choose to spend time with Sheila. Um, I, uh, I, I think Enid was much harder to get to know. I think that she, I would have liked to observe Enid but not because I like her less. I think that she was amazing in her own right. But Sheila was more my type of woman that I'd like to sit down and talk to or have dinner with or rummage through London society with. I think the thing that struck me that they had in common that must have helped them with their entree into what otherwise could have been a fairly closed and snobby society is that they were very physically confident women. So they were very good at swimming and tennis and riding and golf. And so they could join in with men socially in a way that perhaps a woman who was less physically confident might not have been able to do. Do you see that as something that they both shared? Oh, absolutely. I I think that's absolutely definitely the Australian upbringing colonial Australia, even if you're in the middle of Sydney, was you were in the bush. So the the connections between the two as swimmers um, and athletic women, I mean, they were both tall. Uh, I mean, Enid in particular was athletic. They both had brothers that they competed against. And do you think that the other thing that um, Sheila and Enid shared was that they were incredibly discreet, so that even though there was a certain notoriety about them and they were featured in magazines because they were glamorous and beautiful and stylish and rich. But scandal didn't actually taint their reputation. So even though one of them had three husbands and many, many lovers, and the other one had four husbands and many, many lovers, you never get the sense that they're sort of branded as being promiscuous or vulgar or cheap. And particularly with Sheila, who gets so close to the royal family, there is not a whiff of scandal. Now, maybe it was shut down. But is that something that you think they both shared was this kind of tact and discretion? Sheila had three husbands, right? One she divorced, right, and was one of the first divorces in British society. But one died, right? The other one she was still married to when she died. So really, in terms of having three husbands, that's a pretty decent record. And Enid, she had four husbands. They all died. It wasn't her fault they died. So she wasn't promiscuous in that sense. What was the source material like when it came to writing about Enid Lindemann? And is it a sort of requirement of yours, because you are such an experienced hand at this, that you assess what's there in order to determine whether or not you're going to go forward with the project, i.e. you do a kind of audit of what, what you can get your hands on initially, and that determines whether you're going to invest the time? Uh, No. Uh, If I did that, I wouldn't have written any of them. I find that what has to spark my interest is that there is a a big enough story. So, you know, if Enid was just Lady Takes Leopard through Hyde Park on Diamond Collar, I wouldn't have gone any further. You know, Four Husbands helped, Two Fortunes helped, you know, plane trips to Africa with loads of smoked salmon and, and champagne and things like that. So it is, you explore what is in the body of the story and what you're trying to say and that sort of thing. And, and that will take you so far. 
I find that one of the joys and frustrations of, of this type of work is what you then find out and how a story grows and evolves. So if I go to a publisher with an outline for a book, uh, it must by necessity change. If, if, if that's all I've got, then uh, you know, it's not good enough. I mean, I, I want to learn more. I want to see how far it goes. And I'll only find that out once I'm really deep diving into the project. So um, uh, the answer is yes to a certain point, but uh, I, I'm just driven by the story. So are there projects then that you've abandoned because you've had that initial spark and then you just have not been able to find enough material? Yeah, there's two I'm thinking of. One is uh, a story of two brothers in the Great War and uh, who lived around Carlton, and one of them became probably the youngest Australian ever to die in battle. He was 14, and he died in Fromell, and his brother survived, and they both went to... His brother was 15, and they both went to war because they used somebody else's birth certificate, which was common in those days. It's, I think, quite an incredible story, but, but because they, they both died young... And uh, I know they were there at the first Essendon-Collingwood game <laughs> before the Great War. And I know certain things about them, but there just isn't enough body in that story to make a book. So I'm hoping one day to turn that into historical fiction, um, which is a, a different thing for me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is a, a classic example. I have uh, also explored about a colonial artist who was a forger, and I love his story, um, but he disappeared. He came back here to London and finding out what he had a child. Um, the thing I love about him and his artwork is in the Natural History Museum is that he drew the natives or Aborigines as people, which was so unusual. They weren't stick figures. And, and if you look at his drawings, which have never gone on public display, the depth of character in these faces is quite remarkable at a time when they're just seen as savages. So, I mean, I think the guy was quite incredible. But at the moment, there's simply not enough information to take those two projects forward. Now, going back to Enid, she had rather a stoic motto that she lived by, which was never be afraid, never be ill and never be jealous. How well do you think she lived up to that? Well, I think she lived up to it fantastically. Um, you know, I mean, she she never complained. You know, there's a great roller coaster in her life, which is, again, it's, it's joys. You know, you had this enormous, fabulous, unfathomable wealth that she could have anything she wanted. And yet, apart from the fact that she spent it all because she wasn't very good with money, she also had times where she lived off nothing and she grew her own, she made her own soap and she, uh, and cheese and she fed the villagers around, around her, you know, during, during the war and she housed, you know, escaped pilots at, at the risk of death. Her great rival in love, who was a former wife of her second husband sort of found a way to deny her even the most basic of supplies for years and so she lived hand to mouth so yeah i i, I find that that's that's the great thing about her uh, her existence and her her the manner of she, she conducted herself and i guess that never be jealous that's an interesting one because you could look at enid and say there's a kind of casual way that she marries these men you never get a sense of a grand overarching 
passion. And so she seems to have this quite sort of relaxed way of molding herself to the man that she's with and being entirely satisfied with him in that moment. Even though one of them, I have to say that I think the third husband, Marmaduke Finesse, is ghastly. And I mean, I think this is my favorite detail in just about any biography I've ever read. You say that he had an explosive temper, that he was obsessive compulsive. And one of his compulsions was that he had to have his shoelaces ironed. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? I mean... Bonkers. Um, well, that's, you, you want bonkers if you're going to write something. You don't want to write about a perfect person. How boring would it be to find the perfect, wonderful person in life, you know, and, and their decisions are, you know, not always good because that's who we are. And I think that, that you know, why would people bother to read about somebody like Enid when their life is so fantastical another time? It's because you escape your own, but then within that you find links with that person that you understand. And with Sheila, you strip away all the gowns and the jewels and everything. What you find is a single mother of two children struggling in life to raise them in her own with her own instincts and struggling with love. So there's all those connections that uh, that we find with these people. Yes, and you're right because that gives them a kind of humanity and a sort of universality so that you're not just reading about a sort of glamorous fantasy. But do you coming back to Enid? Do you think that there was one great love of her life or do you think she did just kind of cruise from one man on to the next? I, I don't think she had a chance for love because, um, and it was really part of, of her of her vernacular. I mean, she was married off and she accepted that that's what happened and so she's married off. And I found the letter which is in her records of she's writing it back to her mother and they're travelling across America. She's with a man who's 45 years old and she's 21. She's really only just met him and she's married to him. She's across the other side of the world but you can tell within that, and she's pregnant, and you can tell within that that she's falling for this and this relationship is developing and you can feel it through this letter, which I think was never sent. Otherwise, why would it be in her collection? And it was quite a long letter. So, you know, I, I think that that was the closest she probably came was the first husband who then died of cancer. You know, the second husband was she was having fun in Paris. It's very hard to understand why a woman simply go, oh, okay, I'll get married if you tell me to. But I think life was like that in the war. I think that it was so surreal that relationships grew that after the war didn't work anymore because they were in the theatre of war. It's, it's surreal. We, we, we've never lived through that. So you, you, you've got to place yourself in that situation. And yet that endured for 17 years and they had children and they were friends. Um, the third one, Marmaduke, I think she explained it by saying that, uh, that somebody finally put her on a pedestal you know, and and loved her, worshipped her. And suddenly all the things she was told that she was, this man said, I'm going to show you that that's what you are. And she just fell for it. And then he became a monster afterwards when he showed his true colours. And the last one I find, Castle Ross, I, I'm delighted by Castle Ross because there were two people in their 50s who found each other and needed the other one for their own reasons. And they did get on. They, they had known each other early in their life when they were young and beautiful. And now he was 300 pounds and sat on the family dog and killed him. But she loved who he was. You know, so I think that there was love in that sense. And I think Pat, her daughter, 
made the observation that she she didn't think that that her mother was ever loved any of the men that she was with and i think that i think what she meant was that she was never head over heels in love she never found that um which is sad but mm. you understand it so one of her married names was Edith Kenmare she was lady kenmare and so she moves i think does she move from an earl to a duke can you just remind me which way she goes from 3 to 4 uh, she she went no she didn't even go from a duke he was he was uh, he was only a viscount so he was uh, he was not much really Marmaduke he he called himself Duke because his name was Marmaduke that's and he right wanted to, I think he I think he wanted to compete with his friends who were dukes so she went to an earl so she certainly climbed the ladder but in fact went from fabulous wealth to nothing because the viscount was very wealthy without a title and the earl was had a title but had no wealth so it was, it was quite weird. But at the same time, it was her friend Somerset Maugham who coined this nickname for her and called her Lady Kilmore as opposed to Lady Kenmare. Yeah. Obviously, the suggestion there was that these husbands had a habit of dropping like flies. Do you think that she was seen as a femme fatale or do you think that was just a joke? Oh, no, she was seen as one. Uh, I mean, bearing in mind that, that she had been through a very a scandalous court case about his will, about Marmaduke's will at this point, and she'd been accused in court of killing him in this faraway mansion in, on the Riviera, which was not true. Uh, he was a drug addict. But So she was already publicly accused of that, and then she marries a very big man who has, has a heart attack, and people read it as a marriage because she got a title, that was vaguely true, I suppose. I mean, I, she wanted stability, I think, more than anything else. And I think her letters to Lord Beaverbrook showed her, her actual care of him, private letters which showed that she really felt for him. Um, but no, it, it was a joke, yes, but it was quite serious, and that's the way she was seen. Uh, and that's why she lived with this mythology. The, the joke, of course, was uh, one that she initially found amusing, but then as time went on, uh, it was a weight around her neck. And in fact, she would respond to it very badly. Mm. You write very well, I think, about both women getting older. So, you know, at that point for both of them, there are challenges around fading beauty, around money running out, but they live full lives to the end. I mean, Sheila gets a whole new lease of life after 50 running a yeah. travel agency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, isn't that fantastic that she's standing on a, I think from memory, she's standing on a boat coming back from New York deciding what to do with the rest of her life. So she d is introspective at that point, you know, and this was in her own diary. So there are snippets that you get. And so she makes this decision, well, how can I use this? And I've, I've, I've seen it actually, which is, one of her later telephone directories that you used to keep years ago when we used to write phone numbers down. And, you know, you flick the page from the local electrician and plumber to, you know, Lord Dudley or whatever. It was under the same page or the Duke of Cambridge next to the plumber. So how can I turn a, you know, a telephone directory into something that will make me money or, you know, and she did. She, she opened a travel agent at Fortnum and Mason and she became a director. She put women on the board of her company deliberately she wanted women on the board and uh, and she she had a, a new career personally i find that more interesting than her society balls and i'm sure she did too and enid similarly you know there she is and she's you, the last photograph i think in the book is you see her leading a racehorse and she may be a bit stooped but she's still looking like she's brimming with energy yeah and and she went back to her roots 
which is as a, a Sydney girl. Uh, there was even, she tried to establish a vineyard on the property, even though she, she never drank. That was the other thing about her life. Sadly, I find examples of this, or perhaps I see it, is that Australians have always questioned why their countrymen go overseas or don't come home or something, or seek. And they misinterpret why people travel or explore the world. And it's not because they, they're dissatisfied with what they have in Australia. It's because they're people who, who simply want to explore what else is out there. And, but as we do that, none of us forget where we come from or none of us don't want to go home or, or things like that. It's just the world's a bigger place. And uh, Enid went back and all her films that she took, none of them are of society events. They're of the outback. They're of the Great Barrier Reef. They're of Aboriginal camps in, in Alice Springs. They're of, 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 of Indian communities in America. Right, this is in the 1930s, right? And she has taken all these films, and that was what she was interested in. She was interested in people, ancient cultures, in 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 travel. I mean, they drove 1,500 kilometres on dirt tracks twice from Sydney to go to the Great Barrier Reef in the 1930s. There weren't any tourist boats out there then, so I think you've got to look for these little things and. It take, there's another dimension to these rich lives and, and they both lived it, you know. Absolutely, to the hilt. So that brings us to Nellie Melba. Now, Sheila Chisholm and Enid Lindemann, or whatever name you want to call her, let's just call them Sheila and Enid, you have rescued from oblivion and obscurity and brought them into the limelight and turned them into bestsellers. Nellie Melba does not need that. We all know who Nellie Melba is. So what is the appeal of tackling someone who is already a stratospheric, iconic celebrity figure that has already been written about in other biographies? How do you, how do you tackle that? And is the way in that you have found some bit of gold that nobody has found before? I would have loved to say that I have, and I think there is gold uh, there, and I'm still trying, even though I've finished the manuscript, there is some gold I, I, I know where it is, and I just need to be able to get there, so I won't say any more than that. Um, well, I think, what, I think the, the beginnings of this project is, that, um, is a love affair that she had with the, uh, the would-be king of France, the Duc d'Orléans, which has been written about, but I think has been either suppressed or or not hasn't been explored to its end point and so it's really i uh i didn't want to write about opera so i wanted to say keep opera in mind if so if you can imagine that i'm driving along a highway and the highway is opera but i'd rather take the back roads and and i know and it's through touching point over there i can see the highway and if necessary i'm going to go back onto it to travel a little way but I want to go back to the back roads. So, of course, it's about opera. Of course, it's about her great performances and her mistakes and her rivalries and how she got there. But it's about her as, as a woman fighting misogyny. She had a violent husband. She had one great love affair that everybody believed was an infatuation, and in fact, it wasn't. It was a great love affair. And there's one delightful letter from at the end of, toward the end of their lives where they reconnect and it shows how important she was to his life. She lost her son for more than a decade. Her husband took him away. She didn't know where he was for a decade, and he was in America. 
So at the age of nine, her, her, her son was taken away from her and she didn't meet him again till he was 21. So, you know, this is distraught. This is a mother. So this is about a, a wife. This is about a lover. This is about a mother. And it's also about a diva. So that's, that's the sense of the story. So, yes, it's full of triumph and wonder, but you strip away that and you find a person who struggles with everyday tragedies and triumphs and wonder and, and excitement. There's, you know, the, scan, the, the love affair, uh, I've uncovered quite a, a lot more detail about what they're up to and, and the, the fun and games that went on and, uh, and that. so it's, it, it moves quite at an exciting pace in that sense. But I think there's more to Nellie Melba than people perhaps thought. And she was unfairly castigated too, um, which, I, which others, again, others have explored these things, but you can always explore something again, can't you? It's a funny coincidence that Nellie Melba had a romance with a man who was the claimant to the French throne, while Sheila Chisholm had a romance with a man who did go on to become the King of England. Whether he's writing about Sheila, Enid or Nellie, Wainwright has the ability to see past the external extravagance of his subjects to the more relatable aspects of their lives as wives, mothers and active women in changing worlds. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favourite platform. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and Jennifer Macy. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Music